Well, welcome to our annual elders Q&A. At the risk of too much redundancy, we say this every year, we say it as we announce it, uh, as we prepare for it, leading up to it, that we don't do this because there's um, some problem that needs fixing or because there's some tenor of discontent in the church that we're concerned about. Uh, We do it to promote communication Uh, We do it as really a welcome mat to signal for the rest of the year that um, we want your feedback, we want your input, we want to answer your questions, we want to even hear about your concerns. Uh, We want to be open in our communication and uh, concerns and love for each other and ideas and, and growth together and strategy for how to do that. We need to consider how to stir up love and good works and, uh, and that's what, really what this is about, to stir up love and good works and talk about the best ways of doing that. And uh, we're glad you're here with us tonight to do that. Let me take just two minutes to remind you what elders are. They're pastors or overseers. According to 1 Peter 5, they're shepherds. There Peter says, I exhort the elders among you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. These shepherds teach or equip. And so Ephesians 4 says that Jesus gave shepherds to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. They also lead or rule. We don't like that word rule too much in our culture, but they lead. They oversee, like it says in 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. They also protect. They protect the flock from falsehood and from false teachers. Like it says in Acts 20, there Paul is addressing elders. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert." They're also, they're, they are also laborers among you, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5. We ask you, brothers, here speaking to the congregation, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And then he says, we urge you, brothers, here referring to pastors, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. And finally, they are those who will give an account for those souls that God has put in their care. As it says in Hebrews 13, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So thank you for writing in questions over the last couple of weeks. That is an expression that is proof of your care for us, your care for this church, and your care for the church and for Christ. 
uh, it's a good thing that you would want to be here tonight when, well, it's not worship, it's not preaching, it's, um, I don't know, it's the business of the church. And uh, it's an indication of your care uh, for the church that you'd be here tonight and that you'd write in some, some great questions for us. As usual, we've got more questions in than we're able to have time tonight to address. Uh, some questions submitted won't get covered just because of the time. Uh, some other questions won't get covered uh, because an answer would need to be several minutes, several minutes, like maybe a sermon, or maybe it's worth an article, or maybe it's worth uh, sitting down over coffee. So for those of you who submitted a question that doesn't get answered tonight, and you let us know your name, you gave it to an elder in person, something like that, we kept track of all that, and, uh, and we will, we'll hunt you down with some resources or uh, an invitation to get together and talk about it some more. Um, so don't feel bad if uh, we didn't get a chance time a chance tonight to to answer your specific question. And also we have the open mic time uh, in just a bit here. So we'll do like we did last year. About half this time is me moderating questions that have already been submitted, and the second half is Trent taking the mic down on the floor and walking it around to to. Uh, let you ask whatever questions you might have. I'm going to ask our elders to join me up here, if they would. We'll get started. These are our elders. We have seven elders currently. Uh, five are on staff and two are not. I won't introduce them tonight or have them introduce themselves tonight. Um, just for time's sake and because you should get to know them personally. And, uh, and you can also go on our website uh, under leadership and read bios of each of these guys. You can start to get to know them that way if you uh, don't even yet have a name with a face or know anything about them uh, whatsoever. Let me pray for our time together tonight, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your grace, for Jesus who died for us. We thank you for your kindness, Lord, to not just give us your word and your spirit and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places individually, but you've also given us each other. You've given us the church. You've given us commandments to love each other. You've made us needy people and have chosen, Lord, to grow us and give us grace, sometimes directly and sometimes through others. So we're thankful for those others, Lord. We're thankful for not just the church, the capital C, but for this church and for these people and for our history together and for fruit that you have borne, uh, for changes you have wrought, for um, goodness we have seen time and time again. Great indeed is your faithfulness to us. We don't deserve that. And we don't deserve even your faithfulness here tonight. Um, but you give it to us, and we pray you'd give us your goodness and grace. You'd give us your peace. You'd give us your joy. You'd give us your love for each other. We pray we would have a fruitful, encouraging, insightful, uh, wise, clarifying, humble time uh, together with our church body as we talk about um, the things of the church and the plans that we've made and the things that we've done uh, over the last year. Help us by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
By the way, we don't have seven of these leather chairs. That's why I'm perched up here like this. Um, let's start out with missions. You know, we, we always have several missions questions. It seems to me missions questions are usually the first to come in. Um, usually the, the, the most uh, occupied category of questions uh, that come up. And, uh, and so we always begin with missions. It's a good place to start. So Clint, uh, someone wrote in that DSC has sent one family as missionaries and will send another out in January to North Africa. What are the contingency plans should the missions giving dip below the support levels? This is a very good question and it reflects that um, people are caring about these people that we're sending out and concerned about their financial uh, stability. So just so you all know, when when missionaries raise support through many different donors from many different churches, including many different churches as donors. Um, If that does happen, if their own giving um, uh, dips below, their contingency plan is usually that the mission agency gives them a cutoff percentage. Let's say it's 90 or 80%. Once you get to that much of your projected budget and your operating missions budget in the field, you have to come home if you dip below that number and start raising support, start meeting with families, start meeting with churches until you get back up to 80 or 90%, whatever that threshold is. Um, since we are the primary and really, uh, well, besides Redemption Church, our partner, the only churches supporting these guys, um, we would seek to keep them on the field uh, beyond that point. And, and if they get dangerously close to those thresholds that they and their mission agency, along with us, set, we would try and do that um, hard work of raising more funds and going to other churches potentially or, um, or coming up with even more creative ways to raise funds for them. So in that sense, we'd be right there along with them. Not to mention that we would just look for other ways to uh, tighten up our belts around here perhaps and uh, um, consider uh, relative to supporting even ministries here locally where the church is very well established. We would, we would compare the, the finances invested in that versus the finances invested in um, parts of the world where there is no church and there is no gospel. So we have to make some tough decisions, but we'd also go out and beat the bushes too. By the way, your microphone's cutting out because your beard is so big. <laughs> no. Yeah. That's the, a good example of the, what we, the sound is not We'd make everyone grow a beard. <laughs> uh, did you mention also we would maybe go um, support raising for them here? Yeah. That's one way too we, yeah. could, we could seek to to shore that up some more. All right, we'll stick with Clint. Uh, Clint, there was a big push in 2011 and 12 for local church planting, uh, but we haven't heard much since then about future church plants. Is local church planting still part of our future plan strategy? It is. It really is. We um, are really thankful for what God is doing at Redemption Church in Rio Rancho. Um, we're thankful for some recent salvations. Some, I think they have four baptisms lined up for this Sunday. Um, they've got uh, four elders. They're considering another elder. So we're excited about what happened there, but we're not finished. Um, uh, more churches close their doors than are planted in our country and in our state um, every year. So we want to be on offense. We don't want to be on defense. And just sort of as a more recent update, we've already in the last few weeks uh, opened up more officially the conversation about our next church plant. So we're not a year out from that. We're probably not even uh, right at two years out from that, but we're in conversations right now about what our next local church planting um, initiative might look like. So it's always been 
a church planting strategy, not just here, not just there, but everywhere. So, yeah, we want to be a church that plants churches. Yeah, that plant churches. That's right. That plant churches. That's right. Okay. Uh, related to this, Trent, um, other churches have seemed to have had have had success with planting campuses instead of churches. So would DSC leadership ever consider doing a satellite campus in Albuquerque or beyond? That is a great question. <clears throat> it's a question I asked when I first visited here in 2010. You remember we were walking around this room and I said, so what happens when uh, you get too big for the joint? Do you build? Do you plant? What do you do? And you said, we plant. I go, is it a campus? Did it have the same name? I was trying to figure the place out. I was very pleased with the answer, which hasn't changed, and that is that DSC's planting local churches. So of course there's some overlap with redemption and time financially and, and just in mechanically how, how uh, getting a church off the ground. But the goal is um, an, a church that stands on its own with its own local leadership. I, I have friends in ministry who are in campus model churches with satellites and there's varying ways that that's being done and experimented with even now and no doubt the Lord is doing some good work wherever the gospel is preached and we, I praise the Lord for that. Um, but we think that, we would say that how you go about doing church has to be tethered to and conditioned by what the Bible says about how to do church, one, two, and what the church is and how the church is structured. So um, in the New Testament, we see a principle that is, that is quite explicit of local life-on-life -life shepherding leadership. And so when you start... In all the campus models that I've seen, you have an eldership like this that is either gathered from a single mother church that is over multiple sites or that is gathered from among multiple sites that oversees multiple sites. Uh, it's just too much distance for me between the shepherds that are accountable for the souls and the sheep that are spread out geographically. So I see a principle, we see a principle of local, localized leadership with localized gathering. Uh, that we think is biblical, so we're planting. And that would go for preaching churches. as well? Yeah, so the, the video bit is in, this, in the mix of this conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm a guy who thinks we should be able to make enough preachers to man every pulpit where there's a gathering, and um, I like to be in front of the people that I'm preaching to and would want to sit in front of the preacher who's, who's uh, preaching at me. So yeah, we, we're thoughtfully where we're at uh, on this question. Amen. All right, we have a, a few different uh, questions related to eldership. This one's for Ron. Ron, how do the elders hold each other accountable in their personal spiritual lives and in regard to their responsibilities uh, for the church? Wow, it's kind of a multi-layered, um, multi-pronged kind of approach. And it's not unlike what we hope you guys do in your personal lives. Uh, which is that you wouldn't just have one answer for that. Hopefully you've got an answer, and it's not just one method or means. So uh, speaking as a guy, I want to be part of a group of guys and part of a community group. I also want to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with guys. And that's not every week. I mean, if you ask me, Ron, the past five days, give me those three levels. I might not have to have anything for those five days, but I'm not going to have a no answer for the last 30 days. So if that makes sense... I don't just look to my wife for accountability and say, oh, Carla asks me good, hard questions every week, and that's all I need. Uh, I've got to have other sources and venues for that. So to transition to the elder board, 
Um, there are times when we drop the ball. Um, I haven't let us in some detailed person-to-person evaluations and assessments in the last year. So um, I've told the guys, forgive me, that's my fault. We've got to start that up again, uh, and we will. At the same time, though, we don't look to only ourselves as an elder board for mutual accountability. We ask each other questions. Um, Tim's been asking these questions the past month or so, questions along the lines of, who are you guys meeting with outside the elder board? And maybe I need to meet with somebody. Help me out here, because all of us need to have that in our lives. So I'll try to kind of wrap it up there, but it needs to be multi-layered. In other words, as a board, we're doing stuff. As staff, we're doing stuff. But we're also asking each other questions. Hey, we can't do this every week or even every month as a board. So we've got to have all of us do this on a regular basis outside the board. Um, so we don't, we don't want to let that go unasked or unsaid. And the same would go with responsibilities, right? So, I mean, those come up frequently in elders' meetings. Hey, did you talk to them? What did they say? Oh, you didn't talk to them? Well, when are you going to do it? We do that kind of thing with each other uh, fairly often, I think. Okay. Tim Bradley. What safeguards does Desert Springs Church have in place to keep one of us from having too much power, abusing power, and or mismanaging church funds? I think similar to what Ron just expressed, there's, it's probably a, a multi-layered uh, approach to that. Uh, first and foremost is we pray often for the protection of our king to keep us from these abuses, clearly and obviously. Um, but also the maturity of the body. Uh, the body being mature and being discerning is one of those safeguards as we together as a group grow in maturity. Uh, we're a safeguard for one another and we're accountable. As Ryan said at the outset of our time tonight, we want your questions. We want you to, to challenge something if you believe something is wrong and we welcome that. Uh, so that would be one safeguard. Uh, financial accountability, um, we put our budget online uh, so that you guys can see our budget. We have those outside of the, the church as an organization uh, who also help us uh, with financial accountability. Um, and then maybe the last thing that comes to mind is, is really the plurality of the elders. We do not have a, a structure here where any one of us could make a unilateral decision. Uh, you know, I couldn't decide one day that I needed for assistance and just go out and hire them. So we have accountability among the elders. There's not a, a one of us who, who could actually do that, or I couldn't go lay down $30,000 in my brother-in-law's business. Uh, so we have that accountability with one another. None of us have the power to make those decisions. And so some, those are some of the safeguards that at least initially come to mind. Anyone want to add anything to that? Okay. Tim Ragsdale, right here in the middle. Who, who's our oldest elder? Just curious. Not it. Earth. Not it. Not it. Not it. Come 52? on. One of the two guys in the middle. Isn't it? What do you... 54. Old man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Who looks 55. the oldest? Yeah. I'm the young pup. Oh, you're older than me then. 
Ken's the oldest guy here? What on earth? Wow. Yeah. But I think I have the most grandkids. Grandpa too. Ken. As you can yeah. tell, it's right. really important to us that we know each other's age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is related, actually, believe it or not, even though we're kind of sidetracked. Uh, Tim Ragsdale, someone wrote in, have you guys considered whether the makeup of the current eldership isn't elderly? In other words, is it too young? You know, that's something we uh, have often talked about. Uh, we always have our, uh, our heads up looking for men, um, both uh, particularly non-staff, because uh, we're, we're so light on the, non, the non-staff side. Uh, so, yes, we're, we're, I've, I've expressed those concerns in meetings. That's why it's kind of interesting that I get to answer this. So, um, yes, we, we, we do care about that. We, we do, uh, we are actively looking, searching, keeping our heads up for men uh, who are more elderly. Yeah. So, uh, but we do have some very bright and uh, young men who uh, bring energy and zeal to the, to the work, and we're, yeah. we're excited to have them too. I think related to that, our last two additions to our eldership were Trent and Clint, both on staff and both young-er-ish, whatever you, however you want to put it. Um, but these guys were functioning like pastors in our church already. Uh, so in, in we, would, we would be missing out um, uh, with not having their voice in an elders meeting. And uh, so we thought it was the right thing to do to add them rather than have some sort of arbitrary ratio of um, staff to non-staff uh, elders or to say, wait a minute, our now, now our average age is uh, 40 and that's too young. Let's get older guys only. So anyway, that's, that's, it's sort of an organic thing. Is that fair to say? It's yeah. sort of an organic thing how it happens like this where, you know, you kind of in some ways have to go with what the Lord gives you in a church and, um, and seek and pray for others and train up men of all ages, especially um, wise older men. Um, so God's good in that regard to give us a good church that's diverse, but yes, we are younger than, than some. Uh, here's a question about Lord's Supper, and I'll take this for my own. Uh, I'll assign it to myself. Someone wrote in, what is our, co- what is, sorry, why is our communion service on Wednesday night? Is it possible to have this communion service on Sunday mornings more often? And why do we do it when we do it the way we do it? It's a great question. We haven't talked about this in a long time. Uh, When I came to Desert Springs, we did a Wednesday night um, Lord's Supper. Uh, Back then it was quarterly, so we moved it to monthly. Um, So we've always done it that way. It's not a very good answer, but that's part of the answer. I mean, that's just sort of our our rhythm and our our tradition, what we're used to somewhat. Um, We do realize that there are some people who have a Wednesday night job that interferes with this time slot. Um, I don't hear that too often where it's this immovable object in the schedule that can't be moved. A lot of times there's you know, soccer practice or something like that that um, interferes. So the thing's more optional, in other words. Uh, the reason we do this though, not this, but the reason we do a Wednesday night Lord's Supper service um, is that it, it's different than a, a tack on on a Sunday morning. So a Sunday morning, we could be preaching anywhere. It could be, um, you know, 1 Samuel 3 on 
um, Eli getting a word from the Lord and beginning to speak to his prophet, and then, all right, now we're going to take communion. Um, we could do that. And there are you know, better and worse ways to make that transition from any passage to, to communion. But um, a Wednesday night for an hour and 15 minutes or so gives us a, a lot of time to reflect on the blood and the cross and grace and the gospel. And so uh, it's a gospel-saturated service um, that, that is unique from our Sunday mornings and that we're, um, we're coming to get word and sacrament or, or ordinance together um, in a centrally focused sort of way. Um, so that's, uh, that's one thing. And, and we could do, I think, Lord's Suppers more often on Sunday morning we would maybe have to consider our time slots. That's probably something, something to added to the service. Um, so that's, that adds a complexity to it as well. Um, but if you're out there, I mean, I guess if you're, I'm sort of preaching to the choir because it's Wednesday at 7 p.m. and you're here. Uh, I was going to say, if you're out here and, and you can't make it to Wednesday p.m., well, you can. But uh, we, we do want to know that. If we start hearing that a lot, we maybe should rethink what we do. But that's what we do and why we do it. All right, uh, let's see here. Ken, Ken Wesselman just flew in from somewhere far away, Australia? Sydney, yeah. Sydney, all right. Someone wrote, is there a place in church discipline for shunning? Um, they said, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 that one of their sinning members should be removed from among you and to purge the, the evil person from their midst. Is that shunning? Yeah, I think maybe first you need to decide what shunning is, define that. Um, if we're talking about completing, completely avoiding someone, ignoring them, um, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I mean, uh, if you want to define shunning as um, how I think Paul might be doing it here is, is kind of that fifth and final stage of church discipline where we're now going to treat them not as a brother, um, I think the terminology he uses uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, uh, associate with. Do not associate with somebody. In other places in the New Testament, Paul says to avoid people, and he's talking about false teachers. That would be almost more like shunning, but, but even that's not. He's avoid these people, the false teachers who might be distorting the doctrine. Um, but here, don't associate with them. I think he's drawing a real clear connection he says with anyone who bears the name of brother so these people are in unrepentant sin and they are bearing the name of brother he's saying don't associate with them as brothers um, so I, I believe there's no place at all for for shunning someone if we define it as completely ignoring them but um, it is more it's that step of, of church discipline where we now say we're going to treat them as an, a non-believer not a brother but, but that's a loving step. That's not unloving as the word shunning sometimes would, would indicate to us. Uh, it's a very loving thing because now we want to reach them with the gospel. Um, so in, in, in Thessalonians, Paul would, would say too, he'd, he'd say, um, but always seek to do good to everyone uh, or seek to do good to one another and with everyone. He, he includes both groups, the brothers one another, and everyone else. So um, shunning has no place for us if we define it as completely ignoring someone. Yeah. 
You mentioned the fifth step of church discipline, Matthew 18, that that's treat him as a tax collector in heathen. And how did Jesus treat tax collectors and heathens? Well, he was willing to talk to them. He wasn't shunning them because they were tax collectors and heathens. He would welcome them. Um, so I think we should do the same. Uh, Ken, this one's related, so we'll st- stay with you for this. How can members under the elders be more proactive about shepherding each other? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think our community groups are, uh, are one of the first and foremost places to do that, um, where we can get into closer uh, fellowship with one another and tear down barriers, be honest, uh, share our struggles, our joys with one another. Um, and I think that's where shepherding really begins is at, at that level where through the community group leaders and then through the community group uh, leader to elders, um, there can be more assistance in helping, but much of our shepherding really needs to be done amongst ourselves, just as Tim has been saying for years, uh, and Claris in 2013 was all about one another in the word with one another, encouraging one another, admonishing one another. Um, I think that's where the real rubber meets the road. With seven guys, we can't reach everybody. It has to be done through the body uh, and community groups would be the first place. Another great place would be hospitality, um, inviting people over that you don't know. You're not in their community group, but uh, certainly we might have time to, to reach out to other people in the church, not just those in our community group, and try and get to know and build some relationships and, and encourage them and, and ask challenging questions. That's great. Anything to add to that, guys? I'll just say... Uh, we ought to all be growing in our own ability to preach the gospel to ourselves and therefore be ready to preach it to others too. Um, so it's not something you're ready for if you're not ready for it sometimes. Uh, mm-hmm. If you haven't been used to preaching the gospel to yourself, preaching it to your family, to your spouse, being ready with God's word um, for encouragement. And, yeah. and keeping in mind First Thessalonians 4, sorry, Ephesians 4, which speaks of uh, Christ as giving to the church, um, pastors, mm-hmm. uh, shepherds, teachers, evangelists, apostles, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, the body builds itself up in love as every part does its work, which is to say that the shepherd's job is to equip the congregation for the growth which they will produce among themselves as they serve one another in ministry. So a healthy church will be a church where everyone who's around here is all in with each other in caring for and taking care of each other's souls, fulfilling all of the commands that are given, not just to shepherds in the church in the New Testament, but to every Christian in the New Testament. Yeah. All right, Tim Bradley, uh, why do we do Sunday school classes for kids? Why, why do anything age graded? Yeah, so we're committed to Christian discipleship and evangelism and training uh, of children. And so Sunday school uh, and maybe age-graded classes is a form of that. We believe in the primacy of parents' responsibility to do this with their kids, but Sunday school classes or even uh, with kids or even with adults is a, a way in which we continue to get the word in front of us and before us, the majesty and the glory of God in front of us uh, so that 
We will all grow up in maturity so that kids in particular would put their hope and confidence in God. And so, so Sunday school classes are not primary here on Sunday morning. The service, the corporate worship service is primary, but it's a supplement to that and hopefully a benefit to all the kids and to their families, uh, to their parents, to, to partner with parents in the very thing that their parents are wanting to do in their own kids' lives, help their kids know and love the Lord. Yeah. Both and. Yeah, both both and's and. better than either or, right? Yep. Okay, good. Trent, here's a membership question for you. What does it mean to be a member of DSC? Is that in the Bible? Not the DSC part, but being a member of the <laughs> church? And here's just a, a string of other questions related to that. Yeah. What benefit is it to be a member instead of just attend? Uh, does attending for a long time make me a member by default? Yeah, good question. So we, we address uh, this, we spend some time on this in a class, in our membership class, which I get to teach a couple times a year. Um, it's a good question. So our covenant fellowship is derived word for word from the New Testament. No, it's not. Um, yeah, so some people ask, a covenant of fellowship, you're asking me to stand the covenant. I can't be a member unless I do this thing, which I'm not told to do in the New Testament. Is it biblical or not? Um, so the question of membership, being a member of a church in some kind of official way, um, if by that we mean member of a club or you're, you, uh, you know, some credit card and you get rewards, you, you're, so you're a member of something, that word is, is used in different ways out and about in our daily lives, then uh, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what the Bible describes. If by member we mean body part, that's exactly what the, body, the, the New Testament describes. So we are, we are intimately wed together as God's people at a local level, uh, relationally in, in many ways. So in, in the New Testament times, there was definitely a, uh, we don't have outlined a process by which you became one that was identified with a local church, but you have clearly overt, public, clear, recognized uh, joining to local bodies in such a way that some of the language you're hearing quoted from the New Testament around here tonight, putting someone out, identifying someone who's claiming to be a brother, not associating with you. You have people who are associated with and who are in and those who are put out, those to whom, for whom the elders are accountable. So a covenant of fellowship or official membership is, is something like a contemporary application of the New Testament vision of what it means to be joined together locally. In an age when we live half a city apart and we don't see each other in a week and our public gatherings are open to everybody. Some churches solve this problem. There's a church I'm familiar with by uh, don't invite your friends to church. Church is for the church. Well, yeah, our, we, uh, we're open to folks, folks being here, but what that means is we've got to have a way to know for whom we're accountable as elders and you've got to know who you're accountable for as members. And so the covenant of fellowship, official membership, is a contemporary application of a perfectly biblical vision for a New Testament church. That's how I put it. And something I'd add to that is uh, in the first century times, in other parts of the world later on, um, persecution makes it very clear who's in and who's out. And we live in an age of, well, not persecution really, and nominal Christianity. Um, some people are cultural Christians and not true Christians. And so I think we need a, a way to clearly see who's in and who's out, or not that it's spiritually definitive or something like that, but 
Uh, it's more definitive than just church attendance um, when that's, there's no threat of doing that here. There's no, um, there's no stigma in doing that here like there was in, in New Testament time. So a lack of persecution means we need something more official than just show up and be around or something. Ron, a building question for you. Uh, with our new equip classes starting in the fall, are there, are there any thoughts about expanding the building to allow more classrooms for adult education? Uh, no, is the short answer. <laughs> At least right now. So if equip grows, and we hope it does, then we'd end up doing two equip classes, one at the nine o'clock, since if equip grew to say 200 people, we wouldn't want to have a, a filled up auditorium for, gotta get my times right here, the nine o'clock, and then 10.45, Ryan's looking out and there are 30 people there. So that'd be our first step uh, to use the nine o'clock. Uh, we've got two rooms open at the nine o'clock, West Wing and Youth Room. We obviously don't have Youth Room open at the 10.45. So it's too distant in the future to talk about that. Now if, uh, if DSC grew and Equip grew, then maybe 10 years from now, or maybe five years from now, we'd start talking about, do we need some kind of building structure on the dirt lot, uh, which is really our place to expand. Uh, but that's, to me, it's not worth talking about right now, and we haven't, as an elder board, talked about, hey, let's, let's think about building on the dirt lot 12 months from now. That's not a part of our discussions. Yeah, okay. Tim Ragsdale, a doctrinal question for you. Um, you'll have to maybe define these terms for people who don't know, but uh, is DSC cessationist or continuationist in belief? And how does that work itself out in what we do, what we practice? You know, we don't really have a uh, checkbox. Well, first, what we cessationism have... oh, and I'm continuationist? Sorry. Yes, yes. Cessationist, do, uh, do we believe in a continuation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Um, when people ask this, a lot of times, most often, they're asking about uh, the speaking in tongues. Um, but there would be others like words of knowledge, uh, those kind of things. And, and the question is, do we believe that those things are, have continued in the New Testament church? Or do we believe that they have ceased, thus the name cessationist? Um, if you look at the, uh, I believe, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, um, I don't, I don't have time because I'm going to keep this brief um, to look. But if you look at the text where it's talking about they, these things, these, uh, where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. We, we know that knowledge has not passed away. We don't have definitive word from the, from the word of God that these things have ceased. But we also have clear direction as to how they are to be practiced if they are practiced in the church. And that is to be done decently and in order. Uh, so... And in, in a culture where we have a lot of abuse of these gifts, and uh, I have just some history in my youth being involved in churches where there was a lot of abuse of these things. So um, we would, I would not label us as hardcore cessationists, but we would be very guarded and careful in continuation. If I find out that you've got a, uh, your personal prayer language in your prayer closet, we're not going to... Uh, be harassing you, okay? So, but um, if you were to seek to practice it aloud during a church service, that would be a different story. We would have a, uh, we would have to uh, uh, guard against that. So, 
Anything else that you would want to expand on that? Uh, just, just that we have continuationists and cessationists in our church. It's something we say we're not, um, we don't draw a line on. We don't want to divide over that, right? Just like um, end times views, we don't want to split churches based on that. Um, Christians have disagreed, and it doesn't really affect too much church practice. Um, so we would have, have this in the open hand versus yeah. the, the closed hand issues, such yeah. as uh, uh, foundational doctrines that are closed hand. Yeah. Uh, this is more an open hand issue. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, Trent. Um, how should Christians think about and relate to government, a government that is increasingly antagonistic to Christians and uh, possibly restrictive of Christian freedoms in the future? Yeah, that's a, a question we should all be thinking about uh, and laboring to work out, because we all will. And many of you in your own vocations are kind of bumping up against, it's interesting talking to people, people in their own corners of the world and their own vocations have very different stories as to how some of the changing mood and machinery, uh, legal machinery is affecting their, where they're at. So I can imagine a time in the future where Christians can in good conscience work in certain jobs or do certain things. And um, So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a question for the times. It's a question for all of us. The government has an important and a limited place in God's plan for the world he set up. The government state has an important and limited place in our concern as a church relative to other things that we're about as a church and as Christians. Um, and we wanna guard as Christians and promote the importance of the state and to respect the state for its important functions and thank God for it, praise God for it, pray for it. And yet protect as well the people from its unlimited possibilities <laughs> uh, in the concentration of power. So just, you know, those of you history buffs, just look at history to see what happens. There are glorious things that can happen by means, God's gracious means through the state, and there are horrifying things that can happen. So Christians should be thoughtful about this. We should be students of the role of the state, students of history, students of theology, and to be thoughtful about it. Three things I might say if, uh, if you ask me if I had to summarize them, and this isn't being specific to a specific question as to how this might work out, but general principles generally, is to participate, always participate, vote, persuade your neighbors. Our system of government is set up so that we would talk and persuade and argue and debate ideas. It's meant for the free exchange of these things. So don't be embarrassed to have an opinion that's different than somebody and to defend it and make arguments. Um, cooperate, pay your taxes, be above reproach, be above board, uh, and where, where you can, by all means, supportive of and thankful for the state and those who work for the state. And then pray and preach. Um, this, it's an immoral state that would remove um, the right of its people to, to preach the gospel and to persuade each other to believe different things. And for as long as, I, 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 it's hard to imagine the state here taking that away from the person on the street who wants to preach the gospel. But wherever Christians are, anywhere in the world, with whatever possibilities they have, the first priority with respect to the state is to take advantage of the freedom it allows us to preach the gospel and be busy about that and of course to pray. So those are some initial thoughts. We need to be working this stuff out though on the ground level of our lives and neighborhoods and families and workplaces and it's getting more complicated. Yeah. And Trent did a Saturday seminar a while back on 
um, homosexuality, homosexual marriage, some of those things, and a good hour was spent on um, yeah. Christians in society and government, how that all relates and how we should think about it. Is that on the web? Yeah, it's the second of the three talks. Okay, that was helpful. All right, well, we're going to turn it over to Trent now. He's going to walk around with a microphone and play Phil Donahue and all right. see what questions you might have for us. One and I'm going to get comfy. One of these years, the Phil Donahue reference is going to run out. Yeah. I don't know. It's not going to be relevant anymore. Testing. I think this was the is last year. Is this thing year. on? How do I turn it on? <laughs> I thought you were going to use it. Is this thing on, Chris? Which one? The select one or the mute one? Oh. All right, all right. It's such a sweet family we're pretty, time. We're pretty tight around here with mics and stuff. I'm the one who would screw it up. Um, okay, so this is an important... Uh, this is an important part of the evening. We, we've got a nice little tradition here of sort of opening up the floor to questions. And here's how it'll work. You'll raise your hand. I'll come over to you. I'll, I'll keep my hand on the mic to uh, maintain a sense of impermanence about the handoff to you with the mic. So uh, the rest of the group will appreciate that. So think, think in terms of sentences and not paragraphs. Um, and yet, and yet I, I offer that qualification. And yet, as Ryan said at the beginning, uh, Coffees, meetings on site here, phone calls and emails are welcome where plenty of extended discussion and interaction can take place. So questions that'd be edifying for our body and that you've got on your mind, uh, let's, uh, let's do it. Who's up first? Okay. Um, I'm sure I know the answer to this, but um, you can kind of amplify. Um, as elders, you... As the Bible says, you, I'm sure, go to the sick in the body and pray for them and maybe anoint them with oil or, or lay hands on them. And how, do you, do you, how often do you do that? And do you all go together or do you, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. I'll jump in there. Um, we do do that uh, according to James 5. Uh, the, the passage does call for those who are sick to call for the elders. So it doesn't mean that we couldn't initiate that. But, but oftentimes, it's, it's those who are sick or, or maybe a spouse or a loved one that says, you know, my, my spouse is sick or my child is sick, and will you guys pray for? And we do. Uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult time, obviously, um, because of the burden of illness uh, that the individual or family is carrying. It's also a sweet time to be together in, in fellowship and to... To, to join with them in, in their own appeals uh, to God, to, to relieve them of, of whatever sickness they have. Um, and, and so we do that. And, and sometimes that will mean going to them, depending on the nature of their sickness. Sometimes that will mean a meeting here at the church. Uh, it, it's a joy and a privilege for us to do that. We delight in, in doing that. And, and we, we welcome that with any, anybody. Uh, it doesn't have to, to be... Uh, maybe great sickness, if you will. So, so uh, it, it can be that, uh, but, but we delight in, in praying and bearing those burdens uh, with the body and with those who are sick. Sometimes it's all of us, and sometimes it's two or three of us. So let's say a husband calls and his wife is in the hospital, uh, very ill or at home and, and can't make it here. We'll go to them. But if the husband might say, hey, can you do this in the next three days, please? Then we'll see which guys are available. Maybe Ken's halfway around the world flying. We won't wait for him to get back seven days later. We'll just say, okay, three of us will head over there. 
So it's a variety here or at home or in hospitals, sometimes two or three of us, sometimes all of us. Thanks, guys. Another question? Sam, right? Got it. All right. In context uh, to the recent messages of corporate worship, is there a reason, um, maybe legalistic, behind the gender, rep gender separation of a women's Bible study, a women's group, a men's huddle group, a men's Bible study? Is there a reason why there's not a corporate Bible study? Yeah. Well, in, in part, there are corporate Bible studies. They might not be weekly and on a regular basis. And we're actually starting two Sundays from now rectifying that if it ever was a problem by equip. So Sunday morning, if you want to think of that as a Bible study, we think of it as an adult class or a discipleship class, but that'll be a mixed gender every Sunday, 1045. Like I said, hopefully years down the road, uh, maybe not years down the road, a 9 o'clock and 1045 thing here. Uh, otherwise, the women and men is a, is a good thing. I mean, they're, it's a both and, right? It's good to have mixed genders in Bible study, and it's good to have just guys and just ladies. It's good to have small groups like community groups doing Bible study, and it'll be great to have an adult class every Sunday, not off and on, with hopefully starting with 50, 60, 70, and maybe growing from there. So it's all good. So in a, in a, I guess in a sense, that's something we're improving by this class, hopefully. I don't know if that answered all the questions. In Titus 2, it talks about older women teaching the younger and older men teaching the younger men. Um, and it seems like that implied there is that there are some women issues that women need to talk about and there's some men issues that men need to talk about. And so these um, gender-specific Bible studies aim to do that. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be fun to do a Bible study on lust in your community group. Um, but it might be more productive and helpful for a, a men's Bible study to do that. And there's the fellowship issue too, right? Yeah. You know, friendships are good things too. Yeah, we do have guys in a community group grouping up and saying, let's meet outside of this group and talk about those kinds of issues. So it, it really is a both and. It's happening in both ways. Yeah. Sam started his question by referencing a recent... Two sermons, children in the worship service are mentioned in the first of a two-part series, and, and there are three priorities brought up, really a one and a two A and B. Children in the corporate worship, families together as the fam with the family of God, um, serving with on Sunday mornings, and participating in our equipped class or growth in our, our study of the word. Are there any questions related to some of those culture changes that we're initiating here that you might have? All right, back to any questions. So you can ask any questions. <laughs> and if me, me setting that up uh, got you thinking and you want us to swing around to it, you can. Randy. There's a lot of um, energy and excitement and encouragement uh, with the annual uh, thrust for missions. Uh, I'm really encouraged by it. That's great. Um, as far as church planning, though, which there was a question about that, but as far as church planting, what is the strategy? What are your thoughts about that? Um, how often should it be done? Or just what you're thinking about it in general as far as, is there any regular strategy for that? 
I'll, I'll give a hack at it. Um, in one sense, our strategy for planting churches is uh, ever uh, changing and growing and maturing. Even, even in recent months, you know, I've been meeting with Pastor Carlos over at Redemption Church asking him, okay, three years ago, what would you do differently if we were starting over? Um, and he has some things. He has some things that we've learned from. Um, we have now people on staff uh, that have come from other churches that were planted, so we have more experience in church plants to, to learn from. Um, we have watched and learned from other churches around us that have tried to plant, not just locally, but uh, regionally and, uh, and nationally. So, so we're ever trying to grow in our, in our understanding of church planting and the best thing to do strategically. So the financial model, we're never settled on. Um, we like to tease a little bit that we uh, sent off our firstborn with, uh, with a Cadillac and uh, our secondborn may not get a Cadillac. Um, but uh, having said that, we, we, we're, we're continually looking at the strategy. We don't have a timestamp that says we must go out in every five years and plant a new church. We'd like to just continue to do it as the Lord provides leadership for it, as the Lord provides resources for it. Um, we're, we're not going to yank a missionary off the field in North Africa to plant a church locally. So even considering those financial dynamics in the equation, and uh, um, it, again, we're, we're kind of always changing. We don't have this set church planting model that we adopted and we're rigid on it. So we just want to see God use us to raise up uh, elders and that can go out and lead new churches and grow and reach the city more for Christ. Trent, where are you? Oh, I was going to say, um, Randy, that overlaps, or Clint's reminded me there's a little bit of an overlap with that question on age of elders. So if we've got uh, two guys that are maybe late 20s, early 30s, I don't know. <laughs> Forget the age thing. If we have Trent and Clint. They look younger every year. Yes, they do. <laughs> Trent and Clint, which are younger, youngish. Um, we have Nathan, our youth minister, who's been a guest on the elder board. Uh, it's our thought to transition him to an elder candidate pretty quick. So part of what I'm saying is we, we at least I think I can speak for all of us when I say we always want you to look and see huh, there are three or four guys that are somewhere around age 30, late 20s, early 30s. Uh, maybe they, there won't be three guys that are in their 60s, but it would be great if there were always three, maybe four guys uh, around age 30 because there's a good chance that one of those three or four guys a couple years down the road can either plant a church or fill a pulpit somewhere. And so if we're always in this process of preparing guys, not rushing it, giving them a good number of years here, not one or two or three years of training and interaction, shepherding you guys, then we're going to feel really comfortable with letting one of those go every few years because they've been here for a good while. So... Um, that's our elder board and the age is a part of church planting. It's part and parcel with that process. 32. Good question. Yeah, 30, <laughs> 33, I'll be 34. And at some point you want to be younger, but right now I'm cool with 34. All right, Paul. Camo shorts. I know. <laughs> For somebody so outgoing, I have a hard time with a microphone. But anyway, I have a real concern and I wanted to ask you or elders about the this concern it seemed like at one time when or at the time when I got here we had I believe the ministry was called the well and Greg uh, was leading that ministry and I think that was for uh, they're not kids anymore but young adults uh, you know maybe getting into their 20s through their 20s 
do we have any plans to reinitiate that type of ministry? And, and if so, how, how would we go about it? It's, I'll, I'll take a swing at it. Uh, it's been a recent topic of conversation for us in, in recent past, um, last, over the last couple of years. We've explored a relationship with a, a ministry called Campus Outreach. Campus Outreach is a um, university ministry um, that's uh, overtly connected to a single local church. It's in a local church. So this is, there's a campus outreach at John Piper's church and Matt Chandler's church and Mark Dever's church and, and they raise their own support uh, and usually come in groups about four. <laughs> so um, yeah, we would take four uh, college pastors who are like-minded like us and, uh, and are something like Navy SEALs of evangelism on campuses. Um, <laughs> We, they've been out to visit us twice over the years, and uh, we just can't get it over the hump to get some here, but that we're still um, open to that possibility, and, um, and they're still open to the possibility, just a matter of someone signing up for Albuquerque. Um, so that could happen in the near future. That wouldn't be the exact same thing as the well, though. The well was an interesting thing. Um, Matt King, who used to be our youth pastor before I came, um, started his own ministry and kind of... Um, extra church ministry and um, and then also had a passion to, to do a college ministry here at our church. He started it with Greg Schneeberger and neither were paid um, and in not too long it was 400 college students meeting in this room um, and also then we had two college pastors on staff. We hired both of them and uh, eventually they were both full-time and that was a really special thing. Um, that style of college ministry has sort of faded in our city. Um, it, it, it was for one time that we were the hub. We were like the college ministry to go to. Hence, 400 kids were, were coming uh, each week. Um, eventually, there was another one that was the, the new one to go to, and we weren't it. So we shrunk. We, you know, I could see the numbers. We'd go down to 80, go down to 40, go down to 20. We were down to 15, I think, when Carlos was planting uh, redemption. And, uh, and at 15, it's, you can't really hire, a, it's not a, a staff position for shepherding 15 people. So it sort of ended organically. And, um, and so just yesterday, I think, yesterday morning we were talking about trying to assess where we are with college age students and young adults, not to distinguish that really, because um, single young adults that are 23 or 24 are, um, still pretty much like college students in some ways. Um, we're offending every age here, aren't we? <laughs> uh, anyway, so we've talked about it. Um, we would need, you know, someone to lead it. We would need students to be here. And the question is whether uh, it, it is needed in a way that uh, community groups don't meet the need, intergenerational community groups. So all I can say is, Yes, over the years, it's sort of fallen off the radar. That time to come back on, and fallen off, and come back on, and, and um, I don't know. I'll stop talking. Yeah, and we're not, I would just add to that, we're not, we're not doing nothing while we wait, too, while we think, and while we um, pray for something. Uh, for example, we've got two college-age students in our community group, along with some 20-somethings, and at least... Uh, 
as far as I'm familiar with their lives outside of our intergenerational community group. They um, are good at connecting with people their age for some peer-to-peer stuff. Um, some of them more formally in some pretty solid college ministries on campus, and others just more informally with uh, other young people here at the church. So um, I'm encouraged by that, and I'm encouraged to see them come back to our group too because you know, I've got kids, and, uh, and, the, and the guy sitting next to me has teenagers, uh, who are kids who are teenagers, and this guy's uh, looking for a wife, or this gal's um, trying to get through school, or whatever, so... Can we do this? If you're in your 20s, would you just raise your hand real high? Oh, right on. Good. All right, if you're 25. Ron, Ron thinks I am too. <laughs> 25 and under. Keep your hand up. What is that? Over a dozen? Okay. I know. We'll be meeting Thanks. afterwards. I'm just kidding. We're not. Look for those who raise their hands. You guys should connect. Go bowling. <laughs> All right, another question. You made eye contact with me a minute ago. You were trying to get in front of the line. We're all excited about the going to West uh, Africa. We're all praying for them, raising money for them. Um, just found out the other day that Campus Crusade is calling back a lot of their missionaries from Western Africa because of Ebola. Hmm. I know we're partnering with a worldwide ministry organization that will be assisting those two families, whose decision will it be to protect them from not just health issues that may be imminent, um, but other potential harms to them uh, in the first, well, not just the first few years they're there, for the whole time they're there. Different, different global ministries um, have different policies relative to that. Um, one good example is the Campus Crusaders that, that I know personally that you're probably referring to. Um, some that come to church here that have been told by their uh, leaders, you may not go back to, uh, to West Africa right now because of the potential of Ebola. So each organization uh, has, each mission agency has their own policies and procedures. We as a church, in a lot of ways, are going to yield to our missionaries on the ground and their interaction with the agency. This is one of the big reasons why we've partnered with mission agencies. We do not think that we are experts in these kinds of things, and therefore we don't presume to be able to make the wisest decision. We would love to be a, a part of the conversation, but very much so in the back seat, asking, so where are we going? Um, and, and, and letting our missionaries and their agency that they're accountable to for those specific things, even strategy on the ground, um, to be making those kind of decisions and, and asking us for help if needed. So, So for the... Is that Pioneers? That's Pioneers, then? yeah. And Pioneers. Pioneers, do they have regional directors in the Middle East? Absolutely. Pioneers has in, uh, he will be the team leader of, of their team, um, and, and he, has a region, he has a country leader over him. They have regional leaders over those country leaders. Very well de- uh, developed, 100-year-old ministry in that part of the world. So this is well established, and we're thankful to God for it. Great question. Great question. Yeah, really good. We'll be asking those questions for, for decades. Um, other questions? Any from the back? Yeah. Thanks. Of course. Um, what would you say to a newcomer, um, be it for uh, the attributes received by the Lord? What are one of the strengths from the pastors in the church and also... 
one of the strengths of the congregation. Tim, you're about to speak, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. So, <laughs> when he does the, that in the meetings, we nice. just all be quiet. Yeah. He says like, uh, you can see they're being quiet. Uh, yeah, wow. Uh, I think one of the things that, that we personally are committed to, and it's in some ways hard to talk about our, our own strengths as, as pastors or leaders, uh, but we are committed to the word of God and for that to rule and reign over everything that we do here in accordance with his spirit. And so we want to be radically Bible-centered here at Desert Springs. We want that to set the trajectory of everything that we do. And we know that, that the scripture is sufficient. And yet there's a lot of things, even as we've heard in, in recent messages from Ryan, uh, about how we have to consider how to work things out. Trent just gave a, another example of that in terms of contemporary form of what membership looks like. So biblical principle then working out in, in form. But I, I would say that's certainly a strength. I would say that's a strength of these men that, that I personally benefit from uh, on a regular basis. Uh, so radical Bible-centeredness. Uh, in terms of a strength of the body, I could think of many strengths, and, and maybe these guys could jump in and add some. Uh, but one is the body's desire to be shaped and transformed by the word. Uh, I mean, as Ryan alluded to earlier, look how many people are here tonight. The body's interest in saying, let's mature, let's grow. Let's be on the mission that Christ has given his church together. And, and so just even your presence here, I would say, is, is one great strength and, and one blessing for, for us as leaders. I would add unity in, in relative peace, uh, both in our eldership and our congregation. Um, uh, we, we actually like each other, all these guys. We, we get along. We usually... Our elders' meetings usually begin with banter and discussion of hobbies and football before we start praying and getting down to business. Um, we do uh, rub up against each other every now and then, um, but it's, that's what elders do, right? That's, we're, we're making decisions. We're all guys with opinions. Um, we have convictions. We're, um, we're refining each other, and that's a, a good thing. Um, but it's all done in, in love and in a lot of peace, a lot more peace and unity than um, we sinful folk deserve. So, Ryan, did you say we're fighting each other or refining each other? Did I say fighting? It sounded like fighting. Depends on which week. <laughs> I think you said refining. Refining, yeah, refining. <laughs> refining. All right, Clint, were you going to say something? What'd you say? No, okay, we don't want to hear from Clint. Uh, okay, another question. We've got time for maybe one more. Yeah. Israel has been in um, the news a lot lately. Um, I just thought that, you know, like a lot of Christians think that it's biblical to stand behind them. And I don't see it. So I just wanted to know what the church's point of view is on that. I didn't understand. Trent, could you restate the first part of that yeah, question? Yeah. 
Um, so Israel's been in the news a lot lately. Um, and so a lot of Christians now today would say that it's biblical to stand behind their decisions. Um, and I just, I don't see that in the Bible. Um, so the question is, is, is it biblical to stand behind modern day Israel? Let's have Trent answer that. Sure. It's <laughs> a good idea. Yeah. Just sit right there. No, I'm serious. Everyone be the turns around. Best yeah, one be, to answer it quickly. I'd be happy to answer it. I think that. So I'm not kind of a um, international politics expert, so I really can't speak with the kind of authority I maybe I should as a citizen and with in the midst of things going around in the world to the to the current issues. Um, theologically speaking, we want to know what Israel is and what Israel isn't. That's the first thing that the Christian has to settle. So um, Israel, established in the Old Testament as a nation under Moses, the children of Abraham, uh, the physical descendants of Abraham, uh, the means by which God was carrying his promise from one side of the Bible to the other, to the coming of Jesus, actually, the true Israelite who obeyed perfectly. Israel had a law, an Old Testament law, that entailed blessings and cursings. Obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. Right there built into the structure of our theology of Old Testament Israel is the assumption that Israel can get it wrong, by the way. So, um, in, ter uh, in terms of where Israel fits in relationship to the church, this is one of the big, biggest questions I wanted to hammer out at seminary. What is the relationship of Israel, Old Testament, to the church, New Testament? You look at Ephesians 2 and you see that there's one new man made out of Jew and Gentile. What is Israel in relationship to this one new man? Is it something different? Is, it, is the church, some, does it replace? Is it a, a growth from? So here's how we might say it. Jesus Christ comes as that true Israelite who fulfills all that was required of Israel and earns all of the blessings that were promised to Israel for her obedience. Jesus dies on a cross to suffer all that Israel and humanity deserves by way of curse because of our disobedience. And by virtue of our union to Jesus Christ by faith, we're united to him as his children. Galatians 3 tells us true children of Abraham, true Israelites, are those who are united to the true Israelite, Jesus Christ, by faith. And the church is a multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual community that Israel was preparing for theologically. You've got to get this right. So I think in Romans 11, I think, I think that we can say, and I would say that God, I, I would expect to do a marvelous work of conversion among ethnic Israelites before it's all over. And that's about as kind of specific as I get here and, and as specific as I can even be in my own head as to what he would do with them. Just that I believe he'll do a marvelous work among Israelites. The question of how to relate with Israel today, I, I'm happy to bracket as less of a theological question and more of a, a political question. And, um, and so that's all I would say. Uh, you know, be, uh, believing that, uh, um, so our church would not say that Israel is God's people and everything Israel does is right. But because we don't say that doesn't mean that there, there isn't a discussion to be had about our relationship to Israel and, and all of this. There's a lot of history there, so I'll, I'll bracket the what exactly we should think about Israel question to focus merely on, and importantly, on the theological question which is underneath a lot of folks' view of what we should do. Does that make sense? I hope that's helpful. Um, re reach out to me, I can point you to some articles and stuff that, that uh, 
that are helpful on the topic if needed. Let's, uh, let's turn back to these guys. One thing we talk about in our eldership meetings are difficulties and problems and struggles and things to pray for, struggles in your life that we pray for. Often enough, there is uh, praise on our lips for the marvelous things that God is doing and answering prayers in our congregation, our prayers, your prayers, and blessing his people and saving people um, and doing marvelous things among us. Praise, what I'm saying, is a part of the culture of our eldership and we pray a part of our church. So I'm gonna ask each of the guys to tick off briefly two things that you would praise God for before the folks here tonight in our church. I'll start with you, Tim, and work, work this way. All right. Uh, two things. Certainly, Marcy and I have been here at the church for a long time, and, and I do see the church body maturing in a variety of ways, not only in their, their knowledge of God's word, but in their love and care for one another, and their love and care for those outside of the church. Uh, so that would be one thing initially that comes to mind. The second for me, uh, maybe a little more personal in the area that I oversee, is many families here in the church who are, are not only have taken up the mantle of, of leading their children at home, in the study of the scripture and in the knowledge of God through family worship uh, and bringing their kids into corporate worship. Uh, This has been a slow change. I think it was maybe said earlier that that this is a, a new trajectory for the church and in one sense, maybe that's true, but this is also an old trajectory for the church and we want God's community together and it's a great joy of mine to see many children in here with their moms and dads and with their, their older siblings. And so, so I give praise to God often for that, uh, for their sakes. We want the next generation to put their hope and confidence in the Lord. And, and this is a big part of it, so. It's good. Um, uh, as the missions pastor, I, I can't celebrate enough and thank God enough for how just radically behind our global missions efforts this church has been. Um, just so you know, God is being glorified in many different ways, even in this country, uh, through what God is doing at this church. I've been asked to speak at a couple different places, not because we've come up with this awesome strategy or anything, just that God has moved in this body to, to care about his glory among the nations, to care about people who are lost and don't have access to that gospel, and to count the cost and to send out their own people to be a part of that mission. So um, they wanna hear what's going on, and, and I'm just showing up and saying, we don't have a formula, we um, just listen to God's word, and it's pretty clear that we need to send people out, and so we challenge the people with his word and his heart for the nations, and, and they respond by his spirit and by his grace. So it's a good thing to be celebrating what God is doing here and, and, and what he's um, influencing other churches in. I'd say more, uh, I, I'm also over community groups, so I'm really excited about just the community group leaders. I love these men. Uh, we get to all meet together once uh, a month, and I get to have lunch with each of them about once a year, and um, each of the elders now um, are, are coaching a couple of the, a couple or three of the community group leaders, so we're really just trying to continue to build that fellowship with those men, because um, you know, they're not able to be on staff or whatever, um, but they're just, they just continue to love their people, their little flock, if you will, and to help us shepherd them and help us give an account for them and to help us love them and to help us lead them. So I just wanna give a big thanks to God for the community group leaders. 
then on a personal level, we, we've adopted recently, and our boy has been accepted by this church and by our friends here and by you all in, in a way that um, just blows us away and in a way that we, again, just continually praise God for. So this is a beautiful family. We love you guys. Um, our family loves these guys. We love you all. So it was like Nathan when he preached at the end of his sermon, getting all sentimental. <laughs> Uh, for me, there'd be a lot of things I'm thankful for. Two that come to mind. One would be more long-term. One, something that's happened in the past 12 months. The long-term thing would be I love our approach to global missions. I had never heard of our strategy before coming here. Uh, and in my life, I had been involved with and served at three churches before coming here. So before coming here, and I think this is true of most churches, their approach to missions was more passive. By that, I don't mean inactive but more the leadership waits for the congregation to come to them. So a couple comes and says, we want to go to Spain. We feel God's calling us there. Okay, we'll support you. Can't be a lot, but we'll support you. Another single comes and says, I want to go to Brazil. Okay, we'll support you. And the church does 40 different things. Uh, but none of them are really proactive. So I come here and Clint and Ryan and others say, well, our strategy is unreached people groups. Unreached or sometimes at being reached. Um, but we might not have any connection with a group. But if they're unreached, uh, we pray, we get together, we come through a decision-making process, we pick a group, uh, we work with Faith Comes by Hearing, and we start working with that group to get the, the Bible in their language and indigenous churches there growing and, and, and being supported by us, which to me was, I don't know why everyone doesn't do that. It was an amazing way of, of doing things. So I love our strategy with North Africa, with the Mayanachi, and then our third area would be cross-culturally with Native American Indians on reservations, because that's what part of the world and country uh, we're in. Second thing I'm thankful for has happened in the past 12 months, and that is that all of us as a congregation have given over 100000 in the black above and beyond our budget. That's the first time anything like that's happened in the last seven years, really ever since 2008 when the bottom dropped out of the markets. Um, so that is a really good thing. And in part, that helps to answer the question that uh, we had real early on. What if things ever dip with our two families in North Africa? Well, a couple possibilities were mentioned, like partnering with other churches. Um, but if we as a congregation keep giving at the rate we're giving, then that extra, it's easy to use 30000 of that and say, okay, dipping dropped by twenty or 30000 this year. Uh, if we don't find any other churches to help us, we'll just use some of that overage to make sure we keep our families there. But like Clint said, things go to 90%. We're not going to say to them, come back and we'll regroup and have you on furlough for a year here to, to get organized to send you again. We're not going to do that back and forth kind of thing as much as we can. Well, two things I'm thankful for. The first that came to mind have been uh, the incredible personal transformation I have seen in a few specific individuals in this body. They were absolutely mind-blowing. And, um, and it's just a wonderful testament to, to God's glory and his ability to change those who you think might be unchangeable. Um, so th that's the one thing. And the other is I am very psyched about Equip getting started here in a few weeks. Folks, this is going to be a time where we can come together, engage Spend half our time in 
additional exegesis of God's word and engaging it and learning to wield it and answer tough questions with it. The other times we're going to be answering, uh, uh, engaging tough doctrinal questions, uh, questions about like the leading of God's spirit and and decision making and the will of God and and a lot of we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna offend some people we're gonna but. But you're going to come and you're going to get engaged. And by the time you're done, you're going to, have to go walk out saying, wow, I may not agree with him, but I can certainly articulate my, my response better. You know, those kind of things. So um, come, be ready to, to engage, and uh, let's fill the room up so that uh, we have to start talking about building or whatever it takes. So uh, anyway, I'm very excited that we made the decisions to do that, and we're getting started here soon. Yeah, lots of things that could, could mention. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, community groups. Clint's already touched on it, but community group leaders in particular, I see a lot of them out there now, and thankful for these guys, and not just one year, two years, but many, many years you guys have continued to lead these groups and uh, people opening their homes <clears throat> to have the community groups. Um, I know as a deacon out at the info desk, there were several times somebody come up and ask about an East Mountain community group, and we didn't have any. Just this year, an East Mountain community group started up, and I know there's, I think, three to four families now attending that, so I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the group, uh, the growth of community groups um, and the new, uh, new guys stepping up to, to lead in those and the old guys who are continuing to stay and, and lead those groups. Because so, I really think that, like we talked earlier, where the rubber meets the road and a, and a lot of the shepherding is done is, is right there in the community groups. Uh, secondly, more of something that's been more long-term, uh, thankful for, never seen it at a church until Ryan came, is um, his connection with other churches, locally, uh, nationally, the, uh, the Gospel Coalition. Uh, last Saturday night when we had um, the Gettys come, kind of fruit from those types of connections that Drew has and Ryan has and Ron, all these guys have. And um, man, that's a wonderful thing to see and, and a lot of the opportunities we get from that, so. You stole one from Sorry. me. Sorry. I was gonna mention that. Um, but it's not, it's not anything I do. Um, really, God has done something special in uh, letting some churches in this area in our state partner together. Um, and we, we happen to be the biggest one uh, in our connection with the Gospel Coalition, our regional chapter. Um, so we, we meet quarterly here in our building, a uh, group of um, 30 pastors or so. Um, we host something called the Simeon Workshop for preaching. Um, that's coming up in the next month. You can pray for that. Um, uh, what else? Our, our conference, our Claris Conference would be another one of those. Uh, like like uh, Ken said, the, the Getty Concert would be another one as well. So I, I just get a lot. I'm sure I hear it way more than maybe anyone in the church. Um, thankfulness from pastors of smaller churches uh, for our hosting of things that really you gotta be at least this size to, to host. And um, so it's, it's encouraging. They often thank me with tears because of you know, something we're doing for them uh, and doing really together. You know, I emphasize the partnership. They emphasize sometimes the thank you for doing this for us, but um, it's a great partnership. Thankful for that. I'm also thankful for um, what I sense is a serious, a growing seriousness slash celebration, because it's not a, just a somber seriousness, but a serious celebration um, in corporate worship in our church. 
So I think the gravity, the weight, whether that's a, a joy or a um, holy awe or whatever, um, in our corporate worship has grown. We, we've, I think we've um, grown more hungry to taste and see that the Lord is good um, and more eager to praise him greatly, whether uh, under the preaching of the word or singing together or in prayer. So I'm thankful for the tenor um, and, and really the worship, God's work, uh, that I get to see on Sunday mornings. I figured when it got to me, all my good ones would be taken. And so I thought of two that, that I'm really glad I thought of. Um, one is friendship. So I just have a whole bunch of friends here. Whole bunch of friends. Um, ministry can be lonely. I have buddies who are pastors, and it is a lonely work. And they are... Um, suspicion of them for no reason, or it's just complicated work and it's just different. I feel like I have good friends at this church. Second would be trust. Ryan can punch you all in the gut. He can shove the church. He can exhort the church. That's what I'm meaning. Exhort the church in a direction. We need, this is something we're not so good at. And I have never heard blocks of people blowing their top about it. Really, all I've heard is receptivity. Maybe, maybe three or four times in the last four years, there's been a strong word of exhortation for our church culturally to change in this way. It has been well-received, and I just don't think that's normal, and praise God for it. Some of you know what I mean. So, I want to read some words from the lips of Jesus about who he is to us, and then I'll pray and close us. It says this in John 10, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Let's pray and thank God for tonight. Father in heaven, we're grateful for the words of Jesus inscripturated for us right here. Your very word to us, you wanted us to hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know my voice. There are other sheep that I must bring in, and we are sitting right here, having been brought in by his voice, having recognized his voice in the word. And he, having laid his life down for us, has purchased us to be his flock. So we thank you and we praise you for a savior who is a shepherd and who dies for his sheep. Something that we need desperately. Everything is at stake in what he was willing to give up for us. And we thank you for your wisdom, Father, in ordering the church a particular way with leaders and shepherds, elders, being mere men, leading yet from your word and under the authority of your word. And when they do so, blessed by you in their leadership. And our church right now, blessed with a great sense of unity and partnership and love. We pray that it would continue. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.